Amen. That is a wonderful ministry taking place right across the street. So you continue to pray for that ministry, and maybe God already has spoken to you through that video about being a part of it. Well, today is our second week in our study of the ancient Old Testament book, Daniel. We're studying this book under the theme, Keeping Faith in a Corrupt Culture, something that every one of us has to do every day if we're a Jesus follower. Last weekend, we looked at the very first place where Daniel and his friends focused when they found themselves immersed in the trauma of deportation and exile. And we noted that they focused on God's heart in history. They looked at the big picture of what God's up to in the world so that they could understand what God had allowed and permitted in their lives. They looked at the story behind the story, and it helped them to keep their faith. Today, I want to consider some of the choices they had to make immediately after their arrival in Babylon and the direction they went with those choices. Because those choices were based on their conviction that God is in control of human history. All of us make our choices based on our deepest convictions. Now to set the stage for our study today, let me read some excerpts from Daniel chapter 1, the third through the seventh verse. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. Today, we're going to consider four boys who had to make four significant choices. Four boys with four choices. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in this moment, we choose to come before your throne, asking for a fresh impartation of your Holy Spirit. I need a fresh anointing for the proclamation of your truth in this moment. We all need a fresh anointing if we're going to understand and apply that truth, if our minds are going to be renewed, if our lives are going to be progressively transformed. So, Father, let your spirit fall fresh upon us right now. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Let Jesus be seen and honored. Encourage the discouraged. Comfort those who are broken. Convict those who are far too comfortable. But help us to see who you are and who we were meant to be. And we pray all of these things for the honor of Christ, the sake of his people, and our mission in the world. And we praise them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice this afternoon, may the Lord be with you. During those hideously dark hours of human history that we now know as 
the Holocaust. When that stubborn rumor of humanity's innate goodness was once again shown to be a cruel hoax and an arrogant delusion. It appeared that Satan's relentless hatred of Abraham's descendants, the people who gave the world our Messiah, was finally going to produce the annihilation of the Jewish people. And during that particularly ugly chapter of Jewish history, one single Jewish man, like many others, was struggling to survive the unimaginable cruelty of a Nazi work camp where he had been imprisoned. One day, he was herded out into the assembly yard, the muddy assembly yard, as he had been herded out every other day because it was time for the daily head count of the prisoners. And when you think of that, it was a particularly cruel irony to daily count the survivors in a place that all but guaranteed everybody's death. And as one of the Nazi guards passed by the men who were lined up, he saw something he had never seen before, and it angered him, and he was puzzled. One of the prisoners was clearly smiling. Well, it angered him to the point that he put his nose just inches from that prisoner's face and shouted, How can you smile when we have taken everything from you? Your wife and your children are dead. Your home belongs to us. You will never leave this place. You will die here. How can you smile when we have taken everything from you? With that, the prisoner stood erect as best he could. His body had been ravaged by abuse, but his spirit was resolute. And he responded with a conviction that defied his tragic condition. He said, you haven't taken everything from me because you cannot take away my freedom to choose how I will respond to your behavior. That man's circumstances were controlled by the Nazis, but the Nazis did not control his soul, and because of that, they didn't control his choices. Now, centuries earlier, four of that man's Jewish ancestors stood as teenage boys in an equally ugly chapter of Jewish history. They had come from families of royalty and nobility. And after he had made their nation a disgraced puppet state, a pawn, Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to Babylon where he would train them as his own servants as civil servants. And their deportation was meant to serve his political interests and also to ensure good behavior by the royal families they had left behind in Jerusalem. And as the boys stood before their captors, it appeared, underline that word, appeared, that they were destined to spend their lives as members of a disgraced and powerless minority the choices that would shape their lives 
were going to largely be made by somebody other than themselves, by people whose beliefs were contrary to their own. The Babylonians, it appeared, controlled their circumstances. They certainly controlled the culture. And it appeared they controlled the future course of their lives. But while those boys didn't have a choice in many, many things, like their descendant centuries later during the Holocaust, they still had a choice in the main thing. Babylon largely controlled their circumstances, but it didn't control their souls, so it didn't control their choices. They could still choose to trust and honor and serve God because the choice to trust God cannot be taken from God's people. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter what's been done to us, no matter what's being asked of us, no matter what we're being tempted to accept. Because the God who called us to become His chosen people empowers us to make choices that are consistent with His call upon our lives. And no force can deny us that privilege. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, including the liberty to make the choice to honor God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar customarily re-educated the best and the brightest among any people that he had subdued. He knew they would make great civil servants because he would use them in political affairs that pertained to their own people. And they knew their people. They knew the language. They knew the culture. But he knew something else. As his civil servants, they would enjoy a living standard and privileges that their fellow exiles would not enjoy. And many times that meant that the other exiles resented them. And because of that resentment, largely would reject them. And that meant they tended to stay loyal to Babylon. And so it was that Daniel and his three friends were enrolled in a three-year course of study that involved four elements. Education in Babylonian culture, service in Babylonian political administration, the assignment of new Babylonian names, and a diet of the king's food. Now, contrary to what you might expect from young men, one of whom would later go into a lion's den, three of whom would enter into a fiery furnace, Contrary to what you might expect, in faithfulness to God, those boys made the choice to say yes to the first three requirements, and they saved their only no for the last one. And as we'll see in two weeks' time, that last one wasn't primarily about food. They weren't militant vegans. Eating the king's table had great spiritual and loyalty implications. The four choices that were set before those boys and the choices they made offer us some valuable lessons about the choices we can and need to make as followers of Jesus in a corrupt culture. So let's unpack them. First of all, the boys said yes to a pagan education. Now, the Mesopotamian culture of Babylon was very advanced and very scientific, but it was also very 
ritualistic. It was filled with incantations, magic, divination, consulting the spirits of the dead, mythology, and numerous false gods and idols. So in Babylon, learning and idolatry, learning and false spirituality were interwoven. They were a package deal. And here's the relevancy. That's exactly where our American secular educational system is today. It is a package deal of learning and the prevailing idolatries of American culture. The idolatry of godless evolution, human autonomy, confidence in human politics, moral relativism, and science as the ultimate spiritual authority, those idolatries shape our educational systems. They're interwoven with what goes on in our secular classrooms. And just as Christians today in those secular educational settings find some of the subject matter offensive, those boys would have found some of their subject matter offensive. Yet despite that, and despite the fact they had to do this study in a language other than their own, in a second language that they would have to learn, they graduated at the top of their class. They graduated summa cum laude. Their grades were better than the Babylonian students working in a second language. And what did that demonstrate? It demonstrated that God can help us understand things that are contrary to our faith. Now, as you read that statement, I've got a hunch you're thinking, but why would he do that? Right? Why would God help us understand something contrary to our faith? What would be gained by that? What would be the point of that? And let me suggest there's an answer, and that it's embedded in Jesus' final command. Matthew 28. We are called to communicate God's truth to cultures and people who have adopted another truth. We are called to communicate God's true eternal narrative to cultures and people that have adopted a false, demonic, and human narrative. And to do that effectively, we must know something of their thinking. We must know something of their language. See, the boys understood that Moses, years earlier, had used his Egyptian education and his knowledge of Egyptian thought and language to advance the cause of God. What they didn't know is that much later, Paul would use his knowledge of Pharisee religious culture to advance the cause of God in his day. And so those boys were destined to use their knowledge of Babylonian thought and Babylonian thinking so that they could better understand God's spiritual opponents and counter that influence and witness to that culture. So the first choice the boys made reminds us of two things. First, we can learn what a culture believes without believing everything it assumes. 
We can learn what a corrupt culture believes without believing everything it assumes. Look, every man and woman that we send out of ACAC, that the Christian and Missionary Alliance sends to do cross-cultural evangelism somewhere else in the world, has to learn the language, the thinking, and the spiritualities of those people so they can clearly communicate the gospel to them in a relevant fashion. You can learn the language of culture without swallowing its lies. You can master the content of culture without being mastered by its corruption. The second thing, effective witnesses listen to God's Word so that they can better obey it, but they also listen to the world so that they can better communicate God's Word to it. They read their Bible and they read the paper so that they can communicate the former to what's going on in the latter. John Stott, the Christian writer, called that double listening. Every follower of Jesus needs to be a double listener. How is our target audience thinking, and what is God saying to me? Daniel and his friends understood that while they were teenagers. Second, the boy said yes to civil service in Babylon. Now, that empire was targeted for God's coming judgment. The prophet Jeremiah and others made it clear God was going to judge Babylon. They would end as an empire. And it was led by a ruler who had cruelly humiliated their nation and would eventually destroy Jerusalem and the temple. So it begs the question, how could they say yes to serve under that man? How could they agree to be civil servants in Babylon? And let me remind you at this point, these boys didn't say yes because they were afraid for their own lives. They made it clear in the future they weren't at all fearful for their lives. Again, they went to a lion's den and a fiery furnace because they refused to compromise. This wasn't fear. This wasn't compromise. This was a choice. Why did they choose to serve in a pagan government? And I'd like to suggest it's because they recognize that service to government can be service to God. See, God, according to Scripture, ordained human governments. Now, they far exceed the boundaries God set for them because God said governments were to punish the evildoer and protect the innocent. Uh, They weren't to shape your values and a whole host of other things. But government is God's design. It's the alternative to anarchy and chaos. And God instructs His people to pray for those who are governing them, whether or not they find that person or that governance distasteful or exemplary. Uh, there, there are no caveats, there are no asterisks, no exception statements. He just says, pray for those who govern you. Now, remember who wrote that? Paul. Who was governing Paul? The Caesars of Rome. And, and let me tell you, no matter how much you like or dislike any American politician, the Caesars of Rome when it comes to injustices and cruelties and immoralities, would make any American politician look like a a, a rookie. The Caesars were hideously immoral, hideously corrupt, slaughtered people without any whim whatsoever, enslaved vast numbers of people. They were hideous creatures. 
Nero burned Christians at the stake to light up his garden parties. That's who was in charge when Paul said, pray for those who are over you. And I'm not saying that, you know I'm apolitical, I'm not saying that endorsing any administration. I'm saying it endorsing the Word of God. So service to government can be service to God. These boys knew that Joseph had earlier served Pharaoh's government. In fact, he was second in command in Egypt. And that his service not only benefited the people of Egypt, and God loves Egyptians, he wants all men everywhere to come to faith, but it also ultimately served and helped to preserve the people of Israel. The boys knew that Obadiah the prophet served under Ahab and Jezebel, two names synonymous with immorality and idolatry. And that explains why later in their life, when the boys did draw a line in the sand and they were facing cremation while they were alive, they referenced the God we serve. What did that mean? They meant at that point they had already been serving as civil servants in Babylon. But how did they see it? They saw it as service to God. Now, I say that because there are those who discourage Christian involvement in politics. They suggest the whole thing's so corrupt it's hopeless. Or it's all going to disappear when Jesus returns, so all you're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And, and nothing's got to become of your efforts. It's got to be a colossal waste of time. But these boys didn't think that way. And I would suggest Scripture doesn't teach that. I would suggest that the Bible cuts across that kind of hunker-down-and-withdraw syndrome. Listen to what Christopher Wright said. He said it beautifully. God rules the world, and Christians, if they are to be the light of the world, must be more than altar candles shining in church buildings. Did you get that? more than altar candles shining in church buildings inside of church walls. The light of the gospel needs to be taken where the darkness is. And that's the culture, and that includes the government. If we don't understand that, if we hunker down, pray for Jesus to come and rescue us, we will become the Amish of the 21st century. A cultural oddity with virtually no influence whatsoever. The third thing to which the boys said yes was having their names changed. Now, most of you can't understand how traumatic that would have been for Jewish boys at that period of history. We assign names to our children for a whole host of reasons. Some of them good, some of them not so good. We name our children after a family member. Perhaps we name a child after a biblical character we admire. Sometimes we may name a family member under a fictitious character from a novel we read or a movie we saw or whatever. I, I had a woman in my growth group share last night that uh, she was given her name by her mom as an act of spiting her grandmother. Also remember hearing the fella 
His name was Lamangelo. And he said, people ask me, how did I get the name Lamangelo? He said, because my mom liked lemon jello. So she named me Lamangelo, okay? So, so people give names for a whole host of reasons. And they're not always meaningful in this culture, see? But in that culture, and in many places in our world today, somebody's name is a critical part of their identity. Often indicates their ethnicity, their family, and their religious beliefs. So imagine the insult and the injury when Nebuchadnezzar assigned them Babylonian names. See, and their Hebrew names all spoke of God. Their Babylonian names all spoke of pagan gods and idols. Daniel's name meant God is judge in Hebrew, but the name they gave him in Babylon referred to the idol and the false god Baal. Hananiah meant Yahweh, one of God's names, is gracious. His new name, Shadrach, meant one under the command of Aku, the moon god of Babylon. Mishael meant who is like God. His new name, Meshach, meant who is like the moon god, Aku. Azariah meant Yahweh is my helper. His new name, Abednego, likely meant a servant of Nebu, another, or Nebo, another false Babylonian deity. So these new names were an assault on their identity. And, and isn't it ironic that when we talk about those three heroic young believers today, we still largely refer to them by their Babylonian names, don't we? I, I never hear people talking about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But I hear people talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as my mom used to like to say, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. <laughs> she thought that was cute. She loves saying that. Now, you might assume that the name change would be the point at which the guys would draw the line in the sand and say, okay, we said yes to that, we said yes to that, but uh, we got to say no to this one. Now, no, there's no debate here, see, but they didn't do that. They saved their no for the next choice. And we're not told why, but maybe they recognize what Paul said many years later when talking to the church. Maybe they recognized the gods of Babylon didn't exist. They were nothing. A figment of Babylonian imagination. If they were nothing, their names were nothing. So let the Babylonians stick those labels on us. Let them put that on our name tags. Doesn't change anything. Doesn't change who we are. We know the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, is the only true and living God. These names mean nothing because they refer to nothing. And I'm sure the names were still a bit repugnant to them, but it served to remind them our identity is established by God, not the labels placed on us by the world. Okay. In this culture, Believers are labeled ignorant, bigoted, haters, fools, unsophisticated, hypocrites, etc., 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 and those are the nice terms. The other ones wouldn't be proper language for church, though on occasion in the past I've slipped, but God forgave me. 
Let the world put a label on you. It's nothing. Nothing. The label God put on you, my possession, my child, my people, my body, my church, that's the label that matters. The rest, empty pretenders. And at, at the risk of going down another thematic trail, let me say this. While it's not our primary focus, I am sure there are people in this room, your life has been tyrannized by a label somebody put on you a long time ago. Could have been a dysfunctional, perfectionistic, hateful, dissatisfied parent who labeled you a disappointment, who said you would never amount to anything. It could have been the person who abused you and said, you deserve it because you're a bad person. It could have been a coach or a teacher who said, you just don't have the right stuff. I've always liked the old expression, a father can call his son a jackass once, but if he calls him a jackass every day, the day will come when he can put a saddle on him and ride him. Because people, once they accept a label, live down to that label. And the story of these boys reminds us somebody who was caught up in sin, somebody who didn't know any better, somebody who was a victim of sin themselves may have put an ugly label on you, but that label doesn't take away your freedom to choose to live up to the label God has put upon you. So faced with three tough choices, the boys didn't compromise. They didn't lose their identity. But they also didn't die unnecessarily by drawing lines in the sand where they didn't need to be drawn. They didn't decline pagan education, government services, and new names. They didn't withdraw into a little Jewish spiritual ghetto. They chose to serve and honor God in a pagan environment, and here's what they learned. The future has a way of affirming the sometimes surprising choices that God leads us to make. Have you ever felt God lead you to make a choice, and for the life of you, you can't figure out why? And then somewhere down the road, you look in the rearview mirror and you have an aha moment. Oh, that's what that was about. That's what that was about. And so it was that later, after the boys had made their choices, after they had been joined by a new, much larger wave of exiles, after Jerusalem was destroyed and everybody was deported, the prophet Jeremiah made a proclamation to the exiles in Babylon. He said, here's what God wants. He wants you to settle down in Babylon, build your houses there, raise your babies, invest in the economy, and pray for the shalom, the total welfare of Babylon. Now imagine how shocking that must have felt like to the Jewish exiles. It would have felt, quite frankly, like asking that man in a Nazi work camp to pray for the shalom of Germany. But when that announcement was made, 
What do you think the boys were thinking? Oh, we're ahead of the game. God led us to do that a long time ago. It wasn't a mistake. If we're to settle down and have influence for God, if we're to contribute to the welfare of the place where we're at, well, we've already been doing that for years. When we made our choice, we thought somebody had given us the wrong address for the party. Now we discover we just arrived at the party earlier than the rest of the guests. This is what God intended his people to do while they were in exile. Now again, they were in exile because of their stubborn refusal to obey God. But even when he had to exile his people, he still had a purpose for them. And so the final takeaway I would suggest, the boys learned that God's people are never truly victims. We're servants on assignment. Those boys hadn't been deported to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They had been sent to Babylon by God. Sent there to serve the spiritually lost people of that empire and, as we'll see, to later help preserve the lives of their fellow Jewish countrymen. They weren't there by Babylon's choice. They were there by God's choice. And as you find yourself in an increasingly hostile, spiritually hostile culture with strident atheism and rampant moral relativism and the mockery of everything you hold dear. Remember, you are not here by accident. You are here on a divine assignment. And God doesn't want you saying, oh God, get me out of here and get me out of here quickly. God wants you doing your assignment learning how to engage this broken world in ways they understand, and holding up the light of the gospel of the one who said, God is not willing that any should perish, but desires all men everywhere to come to repentance. How interesting that four teenage boys understood that better than many decades-old American believers. And if you're one of the teenagers at ACAC, this book should be a good reminder that you don't have to do a long apprenticeship before you serve Jesus. You can be leading in what God is up to even now. Let's pray together. Father, when everything we hold dear is assaulted, it's very easy to want to hunker down. And it's easy to pray for escape. And it's easy to isolate ourselves. But you have called us to engage the world with salt and light to hinder the decay and the darkness. What those four boys understood, help us to better understand. Help us to remember our identity comes from you, not the label society places on us. And if there are any under the sound of my voice who have been tyrannized by ungodly labels, help them to make the choice to embrace your label and walk in freedom and healing. Father, we're thankful that we're not here by accident. We're here on an assignment. Help us to fulfill it faithfully for the glory of Christ. And when we look back, we'll never have regret. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.